Welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill and I'm the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. So on this episode of the show, I am excited to welcome back Dr. Cody Nielsen back to back to the show. Cody was with us on episode 54, which came out about close to about six months ago or so. That show was on religious accommodation and veterinary medical education and was really a great discussion about space, the uses of space on campus, as well as how do we really kind of think strategically about how to accommodate students and their spiritual practices during such a really intense and rigorous curriculum. So with that, Cody, remind our listeners a little bit about your background. Sure. Thank you. And I'm really excited to be with you and you all and wherever you are in the world when you're having a chance to listen to this. As Lisa said, my name is Cody Nielsen, and I'm the founder and executive director of an organization called Convergence, or legally we're called Convergence on Campus because Convergence is uh, not an easily copyrightable name in there. Convergence focuses on what we call enhancing institutional policies and practices related to what we call religious, secular, and spiritual identities. So our focus of working with organizations and institutions is to think critically about the ways in which our sort of policies and practices drive a culture of inclusion. It means looking at our implicit biases that we may hold as professionals. It means looking at the ways in which we have historically addressed religious accommodation needs. And it moves us forward through the possibilities that are as religion changes in the world. And so I have a PhD in higher education and formerly was a United Methodist ordained minister who has sort of left that profession and in terms of this sort of work that we focus a little bit more on public policy and civil rights and obviously on institutional climate work. Awesome. Thank you. So listeners, as you might have guessed, Cody is back to talk about religion. (laughs) (laughs) For attendees at the recent AAVMC's Catalyze 2020 conference, our annual conference in March, he was a speaker. He was awesome. Lots and lots of interest um, in his presentation. And he talked about, you know, these issues around religious accommodation. But after that, Cody and I had a nice chit chat. And one of the things that we thought would be a really great discussion and really kind of what led to this show was talking more broadly about religious literacy. With that, Cody, what is it? What exactly is religious literacy? It's interesting because like when we when we were prepping for this sort of the conversation around what is religious literacy was at the forefront of this. And I often hear people say that they are religiously literate and, you know, sort of that sense of like, oh, I know about this tradition. Well, the challenge about that is that we can't do, nor will we be able to in today's, in in this podcast together, be able to do the comprehensive scope of religious literacy. So we can give information and data and statistics, but the reality is is that religious literacy is also meant to be not only about facts and figures. It means it needs to be sort of embodied. Like you can never understand, so as a white cisgender man, I can never understand the experiences of being a black woman. 
you know, like you, Lisa. That's, that's sort of the challenge of it. But we can begin to grasp in some ways and to hear the stories in order for us to figure out how our place in the work happens. So those of you that are listening may say, I'm not religious. Like, why does religion matter to me? Why does it matter that I'm religiously literate? It matters that you're religiously literate. And that means that it matters that you understand about other people's traditions, at least to a point that you that you can grasp at a little bit of information. But also it means that you have to be willing to embody a sense of curiosity and hear their story. So the sort of idea that religious literacy is just a textbook sort of like rote memorization is really is sort of a false narrative. So in, in essence, then, religious literacy means taking each individual person's story and being willing to hear it for what it's worth and being willing to value that for where it is. So if somebody says that they are sick, you know, or they're, they're, they're from the sick tradition, you've got to be willing to engage. What does that mean for you? Not just to put out and say, oh, I know this and this and this about sick the Sikh tradition. And we're going to talk about that today, about the sort of subtle nuances as much as we're going to talk about the sort of overarching layout of it. Yeah, this is, you know, really important and and interesting stuff, right? I mean, I think that a lot of maybe undergrad college attendees, you know, we all have those gen ed requirements that we have to take. And a lot of us will take, you know, comparative religion to check that box, right? right? But you know, I don't, it sounds like that's not exactly which, I mean, certainly that's one step where you're like, okay, this group does this and this group does that. And here's some comparing and contrasting and da, 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 da. But it doesn't sound like, you know, the one course that you took how many years ago in comparative religion is, is really what we're talking about. Right. No. And, you know, it's interesting in this because a colleague of mine who runs an organization in Nashville, she has this line, she says that, the speed of trust or, or, or trust is built at the speed of relationships. And that's sort of the challenge of this is that in this more modern or postmodern or whatever world that we are currently living in, the, the reality is, is that so many individuals themselves bring a different sort of blend of their tradition. This is why a lot of people have begun to really identify that religion is a personal private matter and, you know, making it too complex that we can have a grasp. You know, I can have boilerplate information about people, but unless we're willing to, to really go deep with somebody, then we're always sort of putting them in a box. And that is actually where this sort of idea. So like we've sort of traditionally called, you know, said before for a long time, people were religious of some sort. And now there's this whole move to the sort of spiritual, but not religious. It's sort of a counter response to the idea of saying, oh, you can't put me and label me in this specific way. It doesn't mean that people are necessarily not practicing any form of spirituality. It actually often means that people are no longer willing to conform to whether it be the stereotype, whether it be like specific ritual or a specific like structure, but instead are sort of adopting like a tier of structures and sort of pulling from multiple traditions together. 
But that doesn't mean that we don't have accommodations and needs. It it actually means that we've got to go deeper into into the conversation with folks. Yeah, I mean, I think that folks also forget that religion and or spirituality, again, however, you know, on an individual level, we conceptualize that is very much a part of culture, right? So, so for me, a lot of folks that I know personally know that I identify really, it's almost easier, air quote, for me to identify as, you know, I come out of the Southern Black Baptist tradition, right? But and that's and so when someone asks me, I'm like, yeah, okay, that that that's my label, but it's but it's not as simple as that, right? It's just not as as simple as that because I in, have embraced and endorsed a lot of things, and you know, in the last like six or seven years, I've moved on over to the Unitarians, which we'll talk about as well, and, and what fun <laughs> that's been, <laughs> right? So. <laughs> right, and and it's. And I think one of the words that you, the way in which you you describe that also is the sort of important point for us to be cautious around. So there's an awful lot of times in institutions when, when talking about or sort of lumping religion or religious needs in, we say, oh, cool, like multiculturalism. Yeah. It's, and, and my response is always to say, let's not equivocate religion as being a culture. It is embedded, embedded. in culture. But if you talk to an Egyptian, like, you know, like a native Egyptian Muslim, and you talk to an Iranian Muslim, you are going to have very different traditions. Now, that's not to, meant to say that one is better than the other. It's different. It's different. And this comes out deeply, especially among certain traditions that have really had the diaspora of, mm-hmm. you know, sort of growth and breath over, over years. A lot of American Catholics will say in tr- very interesting ways that depending on the Pope, their allegiance, not maybe not allegiance, but like yeah. there's sort of like how much their focused energy is on like paying attention to what the Cardinal of Rome, like what the Pope is actually right. saying or not. And in traditions like Hinduism, which is enormously built into the, the you know, the area, you know, that we call India, but so Northern and Southern Hindus are very, very different and have unbelievably different traditions to which they practice, even though there may be a few like religious holidays that they hold and some rituals that are similar to one another. Right. So let's just really dive in. So Cody, are there general, what are the general kind of categories of religion? And by that, I mean kind of like monotheism versus polytheism versus... So I would I would lump the traditions. There are twelve major religious traditions that sort of dominate the global landscape, and those traditions are you know the ones that you have heard before. First and foremost, the Abrahamic traditions. Now that now when I say first and foremost, I only mean this is what you're most aware of being a Westerner, because if you are from East and South Asia, they'll say this is not the origins of religion. So right. the three traditions known as the Abrahamic traditions, which comes out of the Hebrew canon, 
then the Christian Testament, and then eventually the Quran, which does include like the the like the Quran, like those that are Islam that are Muslim do actually read some scripture and so do follow. For those of you that think that right. For them, Jesus is not a prophet. He is. They share so, characters. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so there's this sort of continuous story happening. So, so Judaism, and then, of course, Christianity, and then Islam. Those are the three, what are known as Abrahamic traditions. But the other nine traditions, which typically come from the East, East and South Asian traditions, Baha'i, Buddhism, Confucianism, Hinduism, Jainism, Shinto, Sikhism, Taoism and Zoroastrianism, those traditions together, like along with the three Abrahamic traditions, make up sort of the 12 dominating religions of the world. They make up about 85% of the total religious traditions. Now, there are many, many more. Those of you that are listening that might come from Native and Indigenous spiritualities, we're going to have a little bit of conversation about that. That's a whole show and probably a whole series on its own because <laughs> each tradition has its own blend there, sort of starting at that sort of level in your, your beginnings where you've got those, those 12 traditions. And some of those traditions identify as mostly monotheistic. So we can think about the Abrahamic traditions as being monotheistic. Where it gets confusing as a Westerner is actually when we get to the, the realm of things like Hinduism, where people are like, oh, Hinduism, many gods. But that is not in any way, shape, or form true. In fact, Hindus have a belief in a singular god, but the aspects of each one demonstrating themselves in different, like, elements and in different ways. And so that becomes problematic. Now, there are traditions that are more polytheistic that exist. And I am not, I will not claim to be as familiar with all of those traditions. It's also important to recognize that not all traditions are monotheistic that you, that you think of either. So by definition, Buddhists are atheists. And they don't believe in a higher spirit. They believe in the sort of interconnectedness of all things. And Buddha means enlightened one, not that Buddha is a god of, of sorts. And so, so by definition, most Buddhists would be identified as atheists. But that should put kind of an interesting label because what we say often is, is we often say, oh, atheists, they lack morality. Well, I would never imagine, one, that a Buddhist lacks morality, and two, it's very short-sighted us for us to think that those that are coming from non-religious identities are also, you know, without morals. But this is actually one of the sort of challenges, especially in the Western culture, as we see the rise of non-religious traditions, there's sort of a, a viewpoint that religion is where we get our sort of moral compass. Well, mm. that may or may not be true. It may historically have been true, and it may or may not be true as we move forward in this. You've got those sort of 12 traditions. Some of them are monotheistic. A few of them are more polytheistic. And then especially like Buddhism is specifically sort of non-religious. And then you have this whole other segment, the nuns, as we sort of call them. What is a nun? 
So and we're not saying in you in. We're thinking nuns. Yep, there are those, and those are the badass women of the Catholic the Catholic tradition that are holding up the church. There are a huge number of growing folks. You've heard of these. You probably you probably read a few articles about these of what are known by the Pew Research Institute as the nuns. N O N E S, which are sort of being equivocated into a number of different realms. So the title comes from Pew Researches, basically look at how people on most standardized tests or a lot of people are given an option to choose. What is your religious tradition, preference, all this stuff? And a lot of people are choosing something around the realm of like nothing specific. And when that happens, there's this growth in the sort of non-specific tradition known as the nuns. This number is growing at an unbelievable rate in North America. We're seeing the we're seeing the the sort of slow but sure decline. Well, maybe not even slow. We're seeing a decline, mostly among Christian traditions, down from over seventy seven percent of the U.S. population, or at least identified. In, in 2007 to now under around like to around 65%. And most of that change, that sort of 12% growth, along with other exponential growth, is all going into this population that now encompasses in, in the United States around 34% of the total population and as much as 50% of the college population. And this is where it becomes extraordinarily complex. One because of the fact that we are moving into a realm of what we call the spiritual but not religious, as we talked about, this sort of idea that no one is necessarily claiming a specific tradition, which puts them potentially into Pew's nun category. But also, the threat to religious minorities has become so deep. And, and if you look at historical trends in which ways in the country we treated Catholics and then Jews, you know, and, 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 and Mormons in the midst of this, well, now that target has been placed squarely on the backs of the Muslim community, which is growing unbelievably large. And in sort of a glistening out from effect, the Sikh community and even the Hindu community are also facing deep threats in terms of hatred and violence toward them in this time. And there is something to be said about the fact that many people on standardized tests that are identifying from specific minoritized position, traditions in that, in that position may be also claiming none as a way to be to self-preserve and to be and out of fear of what potentially could happen. So that's really that I mean that's where you get whole traditions, but you might not be digging deep into them. You might just be putting place markers and sort of categorizing them without fully knowing like sort of the, the, the inner story. I mean, Cody, that's that's really deep. I mean, coming from again, for me, a personal kind of Christian orientation to, to you know, it's really this notion that folks are self-preserving by n- choosing not to identify <laughs> their belief orientation as a you know as a means to, to self-preserve runs counter. Pretty much to everything, every everyone, everyone, air quote, heavy on the air quote. Right. 
Right. It's supposed to like believe, right? You don't deny your faith if you right. have one that is, you know, one of these biggies, right? And so how do people, how for those of us who are a part of, you know, <laughs> the dominant groups, how do we become better allies around that? Well, you know, not being trash. (laughs) Well, okay. So the first thing, I think one of the first things that we need to do is we need to look, we need to think as professionals about and understand sort of the overtness Hmm. and how overt religious symbolism that is easily sort of diagnosed. You know, you look at somebody on the street and, you know, you see a woman wearing a hijab and you're like, oh, Muslim. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, like, some yeah, that's right. that's true. You may misappropriate a Jane identifying woman as a Muslim too, based on the bur- the burkini mm. and the wear. You may also have to stop and take a quick like analysis about the ways in which we then provide stereotypes of of what we believe about each you know each one of those. So. In that sort of overtness, there have been a number of incidents. I mean, there are just endless incidents of religious discrimination that have taken place. Now, we can do better at that. There was a recent, there's a recent case. The, I can't remember, I, I don't want to name which company and then have it be wrong, but there was, a, there was a Supreme Court case of a recent, a few years ago, a woman who was applying to work at a retail store she was going through the interview. The person interviewing her really liked, you know, what she was doing, but she had come in wearing, wearing a hijab to the interview. And before he could offer her the job, he needed to check with his boss to see if it would be okay because they have a, a, a style that, you know, the, the company has a sort of style. Like when you come to work, you got to wear a specific style, classic sort of chain retail, you know, what is mm-hmm. it that you have to wear? And the boss said that that he shouldn't hire her because her wearing a hijab to work would be counter to the style of the company. So they didn't hire her. And she sued, and I'm almost sure it was the ACLU that like took the case for her. And she won. Very clear on religious discrimination issues, okay? So we think about these things, and obviously that sounds like a very extreme form. And I cannot imagine anyone ever in our, you know, in our, in our veterinary medical colleges necessarily having that level of a bias, or at least if you know there are, like knowing very clearly that there are, that there are concerns with this. That also is the sense of okay, that's where we go back to the sort of religious literacy. You can say oh, I know that. Like, we don't do that. But there are deeper there are deeper questions for us to look at as well. So let's just stick with the sort of idea of the Muslim community. And also, let's just expand by talking about like other traditions that, that we might not be adding. We'll think about more Hasidic Jews in the midst of this. Mm-hmm. When you go to a job interview, what's the thing that happens in the job interview almost first and almost last. If it's an in-person gather, if it's an in-person, it's almost always started with a handshake. Mm-hmm. And that may not be an appropriate way to start an interview. It may not be an appropriate way to have an interview with someone. And so those are the that that becomes something that we have to say, okay, I've never really thought about that. Like 
The other thing that we have to think about, we have to think about the ways and become religiously literate and curious about ways that we acknowledge folks' religious holidays. So it is appropriate to say happy Rosh Hashanah, but it's not as appropriate to say happy Yom Kippur. That and and if you and and if you don't understand what I'm what I mean in that, I will I will I will send you and say just <laughs> just Google a little bit and uh, just Google like how to respond to folks. These are little things, but they're but they're things that make us that help us build religious literacy. And then going deeper, we say, oh well, like. You know, was it a meaningful fast for you? This is the Yom Kippur, like, right. kind of thing. And you know, you you can be curious. You can ask about what what folks' traditions are and how they practice that. And the thing about living in the West is that often, and, and we're not even getting there yet, there are a lot of traditions that we don't fully understand or that we sort of misappropriate. So, Diwali is the festival of lights for Hindus. Well, what does it mean? Well. Ask, like right. become curious about that. Oh yeah, it's lights and family and things like that. But but there's more that you can learn. Also, things like holy is a is a challenging mm-hmm. thing. And our institutions of higher ed can often get in a lot of trouble with this. And because Hindus tend to be so gracious and not say anything, I am a runner. And I have actively been in a situation on a college campus before as a as an employee when the university was like we're going to run we're going to have a color run color run and that's cool and most hindus probably won't you know say anything and you know it's a great thing but you have misappropriated one of the most important hindu holidays into like a run because we want to like dress up and get colored like which is cool but maybe we could like pay attention for what it's like, what it's really meaning to the tradition. Right. Like right. you have, you'll have the same effect if you go, if you go to the Hindu temple for holy and they like do a, a great, you'll have the same effect. <laughs> and trust me, they'll teach you a lot about those kind of things. So yeah. anyway, I'm going a little long here, okay. but we've just got to think really critically about our level of engagement with this and get mm-hmm. beyond the surface level. All right. So we've talked about kind of the diversity within the nuns. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of diversity within the nuns. Yes. <laughs> a lot. Yes. But there's a lot of diversity within some of these other faiths that orientations that you've mentioned. And I want to just kind of give super top line. So, you know, don't leave us comments in the comment right. section, folks. That, like, <laughs> leave us comments in the comments section. <laughs> but I read this Wikipedia page and... Like, and there's like this random obscure piece that was not mentioned on this podcast. But I want to just kind of do a quickie walkthrough. And actually, I'm going to start at the bottom of my list because I have a whole list of, of things that I kind of wanted to chat with. But I wanted to start with Unitarian Universalism, especially since I think in the West, more people at least know of them. <laughs> Right. So what is Unitarian Universalism? Well, you know, as a Unitarian yourself, I think that you yes. should contribute to this, uh, yes. as we go. So like the interviewer becomes the interviewee. The interviewee, so, yes. 
from the experiences I've had, so the UUA, the UUA, the universe, the Unitarian Universalist Association, has sort of become a sort of a semi-offshoot from Christianity, sort of a move beyond like Christianity into a realm. A lot of folks that in the West seem to struggle with a specific orientation of the way in which like sort of Christianity has sort of been oriented and have, and have kind of moved into this realm of non-Messiah worshiping like sort of tradition. Now, it has heavy heavy Christian influence. Like we were just talking about this this before and and then I think I'll just go ahead and say it, yeah. but you can see the influence of Christianity on Unitarianism every time around Christmas, all my Unitarian ministers on Facebook announce that they're going to do Christmas Eve services. And I literally say, that doesn't make any sense. It makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> but, and, you know, like there are a lot of sort of ways in which different members of the Unitarian uh, tradition also practice tradition. I will tell you a story that perhaps one of the most confusing moments, and, and I would consider myself moderately religious literate, you know, like this is sort of uh-huh. like a, a career and vocation, but there is a lot for me to learn. I was invited to, to, to speak at the Unitarian Universalist General Assembly, I think back in like 2014, 2015 was like the first time I was there. We were in Providence, Rhode Island, which is like Mecca, you know, Northeast for like Unitarians, Northeast US. And we did this worship service together, sort of, you know, experience, you know, like the all worship service. And I was like, oh, cool. There's some Christian overtone. And we got done. And they said, all right, we're going to have our breakout sessions. And the Buddhist Unitarians go over here and the Hindu Unitarians are meeting here and the Jewish Unitarians. And I literally was like, I have no idea what's going on. I don't understand (laughs) how this has happened. And it was both beautiful and mind boggling. And I was like, I got a lot to learn. So all I have to say, Lisa... Why don't you tell us a little bit more about Unitarianism? <laughs> They're my people by choice. Uh, I, I kind of started and joined a, a congregation a number of years ago because I was, I didn't feel like I fit in the Baptist tradition quite as, as I was brought up to be. A lot more progressive, a lot more fly your flag and whatever your flag is. If you don't have a flag, you can come right on over to the Unitarian. <laughs> bring, a, bring a new one. Yeah. Bring a flag, create a flag, don't want a flag. That's cool. I mean, I think that that what I've learned over the years, at least for me and my journey, is that this particular tradition is about finding your path to wherever it is that you're going, right? Your path to the divine or not. And and actually, um, like air quote, Sunday school, we have Sunday school, but like for our kids, it's called religious education. And basically it is coursework in comparative religion because it, it gives you a wide exposure to a number of different faiths. And if you like it, take what you need, discard what you don't, right? And, and that's really kind of what it is. Um, the other thing that I thought for me anyway, that made it unique is that, you know, kind of in the articles of faith, in the bedrock, in the dogma of the church, social justice is a very core orientation of this particular tradition. And and that was really important to me because I think that for 
um, a lot of, of church going, and I use church very broadly, but church going folks, it is the most segregated space. Right. It is here in, in America, but I everywhere I've traveled and gone to church outside of the U.S., it's still pretty segregated. I would say that it's still not as diverse as I would necessarily like the congregation at my particular church to be, but they're, But I'm also lazy, and so I don't want to go into the D.C. proper to a more diverse congregation. The folks that you know I go to spend that time with are a lot more diverse than in the churches that I had been in before, and that was really important to me. I do diversity work professionally, and to not not have that reflected for me and my faith orientation was a, a real point of cognitive dissonance for me. And so I needed to be somewhere that was a bit more expansive and a bit more, like I said, progressive. Now, it's been an adjustment. <laughs> As I was telling Cody before that Christian, you know, there are services typically at during Christian holidays. What's interesting is that, you know, Christian holidays are largely overlapping lots of other holidays for non-Christian faiths. And and so within the Unitarian tradition, we light the chalice to start the, the service. At the church that I go to, we light a candle for just about anything that might be happening that month. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it can get kind of hot. <laughs> like There's a lot of candle lighting. <laughs> And also it's I think it's important in the midst of what we're what we're talking about that Unitarians, when you say they also observe most of the Christian holidays, they're also mostly observing Protestant and Catholic yes. holidays. Yes. That's also an important aspect just to just to toss in here as we sort of move from the realm of Christianity into somewhere else is just a quick reminder that Orthodox and Coptic and many forms of Christianity that are non from the Protestant or Catholic tradition, which sort of dominate, you know, the the Western landscape, don't actually practice Christmas on the exact same day. Right. Right. And Easter on the exact same days. And I will tell you, if, if you want to talk about the challenge for employees or for students, all you have to do is to go and have a conversation with an Orthodox Christian who says, I need to be off for Good Friday or, or for Christmas. And people say, you already had that like a week and a half ago. And they're like, that's yeah. not my Christmas. That's not my Christmas. That's not my, yeah. Right. It's not my epiphany. That's not my Christmas. That's not my Easter. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's interesting because I don't want to put too much cultural appropriation or, or too much too much appropriatedness of this. And, and again, remembering to the audience that I am a straight white cisgender man who grew up born and raised Catholic and then became a Protestant minister and then now sort of identifies as a, as a humanist, which we haven't even talked about, or agnostic in, in, in both ways, that there feels a lot, there feels to be a lot of similarity between Unitarians and the growth of the Baha'i tradition across the world. So Baha'i is, is one of the fastest growing, if not the fastest growing religious, major religious tradition mm-hmm. across the world. And that Baha'is often pull a lot of the good aspects of many of the traditions and many of the traditions that were born out of the East and South Asian-like areas. So Hinduism and Buddhism and Sikhism and Jainism, and they sort of like conglomerate them all together. And the Baha'is that I know have, have very overtly said that we pull from the sort of sacred texts and 
have a value in the idea that there are many sort of messengers that bring this. And so I've both really appreciated them. And I will admit, they are also like a tradition that there is much more to learn about and much more for us to pay careful attention to because they will continue to grow. It's very clear. Um, they're very broad-based. Like They might be in small groups in the United States. They might even be small groups in your community. But they are they they grow and they have they have I think they're on it. I think they I I recently heard that there are Baha'is in every developed country in the world now. And it's not been more than 150 or 200 years since the Baha'i tradition really started to like grow. So. Yeah. Yeah. I just been having some exposure to it from some folks that I follow on Instagram as we're recording this. They just finished, um, they do a 19 day fast and, and, you know, yeah, most traditions have fasting. I mean, like a lot of these things are not unique <laughs> to, you know, any one group. So let's go through a couple of others while we have a few minutes. You mentioned um, Hinduism and that it was really, you know, I know lots of folks, especially, you know, folks that are really into the yoga and the, the, the stuff and, yep. you know, they have the OM. I love the OM myself. I, I, you know, what is Hinduism? So the first thing, <laughs> big picture. So the first thing we need to talk about in terms of Hinduism is that unlike some folks who you might like depending on what you what you know and what you you know sort of like that pedestrian level depending on where you are Judaism is not the third largest religious tradition in the world Hinduism is so Christianity has around 2.1 billion followers Islam about 1.9 billion followers and there are almost a billion Hindus in the world but over 90% of them are in India there are something around the realm of like 950 million like Hindus that wow. live in India. So three times the U.S. population, essentially wow. close to three times the U.S. population of just Hindus that live in India. So yes, you did talk about the idea of yoga and there are many different types of yoga for us to think about. In general, Hindus maybe, and, and and I say this maybe because like we could we could battle over this, but it's very likely that that Hinduism is the oldest modern tradition that wow. still exists in the world. It can trace its it can trace its history back almost four thousand years. It is built on the idea and the concept of Brahman, which is the concept of God. It is built heavily on the idea of sort of reincarnation and that the soul passes through sequences of bodies on its way toward enlightenment. It is the sort of question of the individual soul, what is known as the Atman, is is deep within the, the Hindu tradition. And it's a tradition that deeply values sort of ritual and practice as well. So we often, I think, make a sort of misconception that when we do prayer and meditation spaces, we do them specifically to promote or support the Muslim community, which is a five times a day practice. But Hindus are also doing prayer at least twice a day. Some more devout will do more than twice a day, but it is very likely that there is a morning and an evening prayer that Hindus will will hold to. And you can look for more information in terms of that. 
But, you know, sort of Hinduism has this sort of long-standing history um, of its sort of interconnection with Jains and Buddhists and Parsis and the Muslim community and the Sikh community and you know, so has lived in this space of being of being mostly in India for so long. Now, in recent in recent decades, really mostly in the last century, century and a half, we've started to see the sort of spread of Hinduism. Here in the United States, the Immigration and Naturalizing Act of 1965 is probably the most important moment of Hinduism in Western culture that we have seen. So before 1965, there were just over 17,000 Hindus in America, very isolated from the other Hindu traditions in the, in the world, growing and in the, in doing their own thing. But since 1965, the growth of Hinduism in the United States alone now has increased in the realm of around 4,000%. And when the 2020 census comes out, it is very likely that we will see the total number of Hindus in America cross the, cross the million person mark, which despite still being a a small segment of the population, still about 0.3%, uh, you know, 0.3, yeah. three tenths of 1% of the population. <laughs> so still relatively small. Hindus are some of the most educated religious like class, class in, in, the, in America. In fact, they are the, the most educated religious class in America. And 98% of Hindus will go to college that live here. And almost 77% of all Hindus in America have college degrees. So we think about that and we think about the ways in which we need to care for the Hindu community, Diwali, Holi as being traditions. But again, going back a little bit to the beginning, Hindus have greatly different practices when it comes to religious holidays. There are somewhere in the realm of 150 different traditions and holidays that different Hindus based on where they are, based on the sort of provinces that they are in and sort of just their own experiences might pick up on. So again, that goes back to the understanding of, you know, just being able to be curious enough to say, tell me more about how you practice Hinduism. So for moving from there to Buddhism, which I think a lot of folks kind of, again, you've mentioned this uh, a bit, that there's folks that are like, all of those ism groups over there. (laughs) Right, all those ism groups over there. (laughs) So the Buddhist tradition, or just now we're just going down the line of what are the the largest traditions. Buddhism is the fourth largest religion in the world. Somewhere just under half a million, sorry, Somewhere just under 500 million total followers of Buddhism across the world. Buddhism also has deep ritualistic prayer. In fact, most Buddhists practice prayer on that sort of three to four times a day. And also, I'm going to tell you that I just made my own my own mistake in the midst of this. So we'll often appropriate and say, oh, Buddhists go to do prayer. They don't. They're actually chanting. And so people are like, oh, like Buddhist prayer. And it's like, actually, no, it's, it's chanting. And so it's different. Now, again, most Buddhists I know are pretty gracious and they probably would be like, no, 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 that's, that's okay. But by definition, they're not doing prayer they're chanting. And they'll do this three to four times a day. Obviously, the Buddha is sort of known as the founder of Buddhism. It's about 2,500 years old. He lived during the fifth century 
or the fifth century in the modern Gregorian calendar, BC, you know, all of that. And the idea of the religious movement has always sort of been sort of built on Buddha and enlightenment and the sense of the followers that come after that. They don't acknowledge a support of a supreme God or deity, as we talked about before, but rather an inner peace and wisdom that sort of comes from that and that the path of enlightenment is understood through sort of morality, meditation, reflection, and the ways in which we live out the world. Buddhism has has deeply grown in the West um, as being as being something that is in not ingrained, but people have sort of picked pieces off. It's very interesting because as Hinduism and as Sikhism and as Jainism have also grown in the West, Buddhism has also grown, but we don't see the kind of acts of violence and we don't see the sort of the the ways in which the Hindu or the Muslim community especially are are being targets of religious of religious intolerance in the same way that Buddhism is. And it's really interesting to me how that has come and hasn't, you know, hasn't been seen in such a way. And and maybe it's just the way in which we sort of the sort of white colonialistic narrative have sort of said, oh, we're going to adopt this tradition where we're going to make in-group and out group between these traditions. But yeah, but Buddhism seems to have sort of latched on to the West in some ways. So there's much more on that that I am not as skilled with that we can we could get some skilled uh, expertise on. Great. So that brings me to really kind of one of my final questions, and and that is, what are some good resources where folks can go and just explore, really kind of dig into this notion of financial literacy? I'm sorry. I talk a lot about financial literacy in my other research life, but religious literacy. So religious literacy, of course, again, remembering that we have to be curious about asking people about things and that even just reading documents or reading things is only going to take us so far. I really look at the work of the Religious Literacy Project, which is at the Harvard Divinity School, as being a, as being a key to this. The Professor Diane Moore has spent over 30 years working at this. There are folks at the at the Pluralism Project, which is also at Harvard University. That's the work of Diana Eck that I would point to as being some places in terms of this. And then I would say, don't be afraid to go exploring and looking for associations and communities that are out there. There is a national organization known as the Sikh Coalition that does a lot of religious literacy training and education on Sikhism in the United States. There is an awful lot um, that we can find. I would I would consult some of the Buddha the Buddhist practitioners and, and, and teachers in your area. I will I will put a plug out for something that that you might never have imagined. So a friend of mine who is the Hindu chaplain at, at Yale and her father who has spent a lifetime working on on issues of Hinduism, you know, being Hindu himself, wrote a book and it just happens to be the the Hinduism for dummies. Book, oh, wow. you, know, you know, like those, you know, back from like, you know, 2000 uh-huh. or 1997. And I don't think I've ever recommended on a, on a, on, on a broadcast or, or, or on something like this, a four dummies book before, but he wrote the book called, you know, the, the Hindus for Hinduism for dummies. And it's actually quite good. Yeah. It actually has a lot of information that you, 
you know, might be interested in and might be helpful for you. So those are some of the resources that I would look to. And then I think the, the, the thing is, is that as we do this work, remember because each tradition is, and, and, and what we look for in traditions is not meant to be just about history. It's about embodiment. That in the end, we can only go so far. We can try to claim that we understand Hinduism as I have sort of come out here and tried to say, this is what Hinduism is about, but I'm not Hindu. And thus, anyone listening to this who is like, Cody doesn't have any idea about Hinduism, that's true. I can only tell you so much. And so I think we just remain curious and open, but we have to recognize that in the end, our knowledge and our literacy will only go so far as long as we remember to just, as, as long as we only stay on the page and we have to go beyond like just reading and go into the, into the narratives with people. Awesome. Great. Well, these are some great resources and some great guidance. So yes, the Harvard Religious Literacy Program, the Pluralism Project you mentioned. The Pluralism Project. Pluralism Project. We'll make some links to that. And again, don't be afraid to reach out to local associations and community organizations. And then finally, Hindu for Dummies, which we will certainly try to find a a link for. Thanks, Cody. This has been fun. It's been really fun. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And, you know, again, for all of the, all of you guys out there doing this, you know, wherever you come in terms of your tradition, it's just, I think part of the reason that we're trying to illuminate this and highlight this is that so often this has sort of been the conversation that gets put on the sideline, the conversation that gets told is something we don't talk about, or the idea that we have this sort of private matter that that is really not addressed in terms of our diversity and inclusion. And it doesn't have to be like that at all. And in fact, it should never be like that. We haven't asked people to put away their other forms of identity that, that make them a whole person. We shouldn't ask people to come onto our campuses. And then as one person so aptly put, you are asked to bring your whole self to campus. And then this aspect, we just cut your arm off. And then we're like, now, good, right? Okay. Like we don't talk about your tradition. So it's just sort of whoever is listening to this, just a sort of subtle reminder to say, this is an aspect of our identity. And maybe you don't, you know, maybe you've been burned by religion, maybe you don't really know much, but we are seeing the world change on us. And there has never been a more important time for us to pay careful attention to the ways in which we build compassion and support. And in the end, institutional climate and support for our students and for each other. All right. Thank you. That is a great, great Great note to end the show on. So thank you again, Cody, friend and colleague here. This has been another episode of AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air. Again, to my guests, thank you so much. We'll be putting a lot of information out along with this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the show using your favorite podcast app. Also, don't be afraid to give us a rating. Five star, five star, five star. Because, you know, I'm shameless. (laughs) And also be sure to like us on Facebook, AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air Podcast. So from our office to yours in the midst of this social distancing moment, thanks for listening. 